Welcome to Industry Insights, a healthcare podcast presented by Novant Health. I'm Gina DiPietro, and I'll be guiding the conversations in each episode. In this podcast, I talk with Dr. David Priest, Chief Safety, Quality, and Epidemiology Officer at Novant Health, who's been integral in leading the charge against COVID-19. We dive into how the coronavirus has changed the landscape for infectious disease physicians. And Dr. Priest also discusses why public health should stay outside of politics, what the future of viruses like COVID-19 may look like, and key lessons learned while combating this pandemic. Thank you for listening. Dr. Priest, tell us what an infectious disease physician does, and before COVID-19, what things did you work on? Yeah, so an infectious diseases physician is a subspecialized internist. So uh, after you go to medical school, you do internal medicine residency, and then you choose to subspecialize within internal medicine. So for instance, a cardiologist subspecializes in heart care, an oncologist specializes in cancer care, an infectious disease physician subspecializes in infection. So every patient we see has an infection of some kind. Um, and what's great about being an infectious diseases medicine is it's incredibly broad. So any part of the body can be infected. And so you get to interact with all the other medical disciplines. The terrible thing about being an infectious diseases physician is that it's so broad. Um, you're expected to know things about things you've never seen and tropical diseases. And um, so that can be intimidating and a little scary when you're not focused on, a, say, a single organ system. Um, but that's what, to me, has is, is made it fun, how, how broad it is. So we work on a variety of things. We do tropical medicine. We do uh, hospital uh, cases like sepsis, uh, patients with cancer who've developed infections. We do um, uh, emerging infections like Ebola. Uh, we help deal with influenza. We do orthopedic infections. So really anything you can imagine that's an infection, uh, infections of the heart valve, infections of the central nervous system, sexually transmitted infections. Uh, we also care for those with chronic viral infections like HIV or hepatitis B or C. So it's a really broad, exciting field. Do you think that there was more early community concern to something like Ebola than COVID-19? And if so, why would that be the case? I think there was. Uh, one is just the, um, the fact is the mortality rate for Ebola is much higher than it is for COVID. Um, and so I think that that's a scarier proposition for the general public. Uh, I think there was actually really more known about Ebola this last time. I mean, we've known about Ebola for several decades and people knew how deadly that was. Um, and, and they knew that if they acquired it, the risk of death was quite high. I think COVID was a little different. I think they saw, people saw it, uh, even if this was inaccurate, they thought, well, maybe it's some kind of flu. Um, I've had the flu before, it's probably not that bad. Uh, and so I think the, the response to the public was a little different. Also, we got control over Ebola, at least outside of Africa, more quickly. It was a devastating uh, problem on the continent of, of Africa, uh, uh, where COVID has, has gone on for many, many months. And so it almost has this sense of complacency that comes along with it because of how long we've been dealing with it. The world anxiously awaited a vaccine for COVID-19, which could put an end to this pandemic. But at the same time, concerns are raised that a vaccine created quickly might not have had enough time to vet long-term issues. So from a historic perspective, 
How has the vaccine development and the testing process for COVID-19 been in comparison to vaccines for things such as polio or smallpox and others? The current vaccines that are coming out for COVID are mRNA vaccines, and I'm incredibly excited about this technology. The idea around mRNA vaccines is actually not as new as people think. For a number of years, researchers have been using this type of technology or, or testing it for a variety of medical problems, including infections and cancers, actually. Traditionally, the way a vaccine is made is you have to take a virus or a bacteria or whatever microorganism you're trying to protect people from, and you have to alter it in such a way that it's weakened and then give it to the person to hopefully get them to make an immune response so that they're protected against whatever that virus or bacteria or microorganism is. When you do that, uh, that, that process is potentially painstaking, expensive, can take months and years um, if people remember flu shots have traditionally been grown in eggs, so you have to have warehouses full of eggs. It's, a, it's just a time-consuming, hard process. What's exciting about mRNA vaccines is that's not necessary. So rather than trying to get people a weakened version of a microorganism, instead we're saying we're going to teach your body to make a protein that's on the side of the microorganism, and that's what's going to give the immune response. So mRNA vaccines can be developed very quickly um, and be made much more quickly. Uh, the reason uh, it took a few years for these to come to the point they could be used is that mRNA is very, very fragile. It, it degrades very quickly. And so there were important technological advances that actually helped protect the mRNA by putting a little lipid around it and also storing those vaccines at very cold temperatures. And so once those things were worked out from a technology standpoint, then the vaccine could move forward. So while it seems like, oh, this happened very quickly, actually the background on it's been around for some time. Is it unusual to have multiple versions of a vaccine with different formulas like we do with Pfizer and Moderna and several other global companies? It's really not that unusual. Manufacturers can, different manufacturers can make the same type of vaccine. Uh, and we want that, right? We want uh, different companies coming at a problem as important as this from several angles. And you want them to, to we want the best one to, to rise above the others. And if they work equally, we wanna use them all. I mean, we're, we're in such a situation uh, now that we need um, all the vaccine help we can get and we want it to be safe and effective. And I think both the Pfizer and Moderna products are, are both safe and effective. And since there are multiple versions of the COVID-19 vaccine, how can people know that they're all safe? So both the Pfizer and Moderna products are, are use mRNA technology. And because that mRNA is so fragile, when it's given to you, it only lasts in your cells about 24 to 48 hours, and then it degrades. So there's really no mechanism that would lead to the, a long-term problem or a, a situation where you have a long-term side effect. Now, in the short term, you may have what we call expected effects, where you get the vaccine and then you have the symptoms that are consistent with an immune response to it. Your arm can hurt, you get a little, little low-grade fever, maybe some redness, you have kind of the blahs for a day or two, and that quickly goes away. In both the trials, um, with Moderna and Pfizer, there were no long-term serious safety events that were noted. Um, and so we, we feel very good about the safety profile, not only from what was observed in the trials, but also the mechanism and how the vaccines work. 
Now, other vaccines could come to market and we would have the same demands of those vaccines show us that this vaccine is both safe and effective. Moderna and Pfizer both reported around a 95% effectiveness rate for their vaccines, which is frankly incredible. Um, we think about the flu vaccine that we give every year, which often is effective less than 50% of the time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't get it. Actually, the more of us that get it, no matter how effective it is, the better. Um, but compared to our, our yearly flu vaccine, these are incredibly effective vaccines. And another question for our listeners, ethically, many leaders want to wait for the vaccine. Most people don't want to be the leader, the celebrity, or the athlete who's accused of taking a dose of the vaccine from someone more in need. I know even Pfizer's CEO said he would wait his turn to get the vaccine because he doesn't want executives to cut the line. But at the same token, leaders and celebrities have incredible influence and can encourage others to get the vaccine. What would you recommend leaders do? Should they be leading by example to show people that they wouldn't encourage people to do anything they wouldn't do? Or wait until most people have gotten the vaccine to ensure that you know the people who are most in need have the opportunity to get vaccinated? Yeah, so that's a great question. This is a really fine line to walk uh, for leaders. Uh, because to your point, uh, we want to show that we have confidence in the vaccine. We want to publicly say we've gotten it. Um, at the same time, leaders and executives are often not the individuals who are on the front line, particularly in healthcare. We've seen controversy around the country related to this topic. Uh, so the, what we've tried to do at, in our organization is to say, we're going we're to try to balance this. We're certainly not going to give vaccine to executive leaders who are working from home ahead of our one a, phase 1A team members, those nurses and doctors and environmental services staff and respiratory therapists and those individuals who are caring for COVID patients every single day. Uh, they, they deserve, they're risking their lives. They deserve to get vaccine first and that's what our approach has been. Uh, but we do have key leaders, particularly key leaders who do see patients um, who have publicly gotten the vaccine to say, look, we believe in this. So uh, there, there is a little bit of tension there and you have to work that out, I think, in your organization. Um, but I would lead with those most at risk and then some key, just a few key leaders to, to ensure that, that people understand the vaccine is, is safe and effective. And look, we understand there's, there's vaccine hesitancy. Uh, and so we need to do those things to get people to understand this is safe and, and they should do it. But you have to be careful about how you approach it. I want to go back to a point that you made. You mentioned herd immunity. It's really important that people buy into getting the COVID-19 vaccine to get this pandemic under control, right? Absolutely. And we think 70 to 75% of our communities need to have some degree of immunity, either from having COVID or having the vaccine or both. Uh, in order for this to really slow down and let us move back to, you know, the way we lived before all of this happened. Um, and so that's, that's why we're emphasizing that we, we have, that the vaccine is safe uh, and we're really encouraging individuals to get it. We understand vaccine hesitancy, particularly in certain parts of our community that have had historic healthcare disparities, um, you know, the African-American community and the, the history that that community has had with the healthcare system has, has not always been good. Um, and unfortunately, things like Tuskegee and other um, experiments like it uh, really um, built a sense of distrust within the African-American community, which is entirely understandable. 
Um, and so we need to work through that. And we have leaders, African-American leaders in our organization who've gotten the vaccine and are, are helping with that messaging um, because because it's so we're not going to get to herd immunity if we don't get all parts of our community equitably immunized. What do you think the future of viruses like COVID-19 looks like? Meaning, do you think that we'll continue to have outbreaks of new viruses, maybe not to the scale, but in the future? I think invariably there will be other pandemics. The key is when, um, and I think we're certainly not done with this one. Uh, there also are concerns that in any pandemic, could the virus uh, mutate in such a way that it becomes more transmissible, more infectious, um, would require adjustments to the vaccine. I think all of those things are possible. From uh, kind of early in the pandemic to more recently, we've seen reports of mutations in SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID. Those mutations have made the virus more transmissible, but to, to date, we have not seen that it caused it to cause any more serious infections. Um, but that, that can change over time. And so that may change how our vaccine approach works. So for instance, if enough mutations occur to the virus that the current vaccines uh, are not as effective, we would have to adjust those. And perhaps you're getting a, a new vaccine every year against COVID to protect you. We, have, we don't know that yet. Uh, right now, the mutations that have been seen are, um, we believe are still covered by the current vaccine. But it just speaks to our need uh, as a nation and globally to put more resources into public health, more resources into pandemic response, more resources into monitoring situations and having the appropriate testing we need for individuals and, and certainly monitoring at our borders and the borders of other nations to ensure if these things are detected that we get on those, that we get on these things quickly. If you remember the original SARS uh, epidemic pandemic was obviously much smaller. And the reason it was, was individuals didn't, uh, uh, they didn't transmit the virus if they didn't have symptoms. So you knew who was contagious because they had symptoms. In COVID, SARS-CoV-2, you could transmit the virus and have no symptoms. That is why it's been so much harder to get our arms around it compared to what was happening with the original SARS. So the characteristics of whatever that virus is are really important. Uh, and I think invariably there'll be other pandemics. We just need to be better prepared. Many of our listeners are business and government leaders who want to do anything they can to prevent this type of mass pandemic from happening again. From your personal perspective, what have we learned as leaders that we can do differently in the future? Yeah, I think there've been a lot of hard lessons. Um, I think um, some, and, and when times are good and there are no outbreaks or pandemics, um, we tend to cut back on public health funding. I think when there is a, a budget crunch of some kind, sometimes that's the first thing to, to get removed. Um, and I think this teaches us that's not a good idea. Uh, we need to make sure we do have those, um, the capability to um, you know, monitor for outbreaks around the world. We have some systems that do that, um, but we need to have more systems that do that. We need better cooperation across national lines. Um, in order to uh, have early warning systems when these kind of things develop and have the ability to develop diagnostics uh, and vaccines and therapeutics more quickly than we did uh, with COVID. Um, and I think the other thing is we, we have to make sure that public health uh, stays outside of politics as much as possible. Uh, I understand that often leaders of these of public health organizations are appointed or 
Occasionally elected leaders have, have some jurisdiction over public health. And so it's hard to totally avoid politics. But when public health becomes really a, a political football and gets thrown around, uh, we found through the, this particular pandemic that that's not as use, it's not a useful thing. It doesn't allow the, our, the public health officials and our scientists and our physicians to, to do the things they need to do to, pr to protect the public. Um, and, I, and I think the other thing I would say is a more unified national message, I think, will be helpful for the next pandemic. Uh, because it, it's kind of, there's kind of confusion. There's been some confusion. Now, now look, the guidance can change over time. That's okay. Uh, as we learn more, we, we have, we need to be able to, to make new, new, give new advice and, and make new guidelines as we learn more. But the message wasn't very unified. And I think that fostered distrust and um, also allowed uh, rumors and, and false um, statements about COVID to be spread online. And I think online is the other piece, right? We live in an age of this, of social media and, and online influence, um, which has some benefits, but also has some downside when small um, contrarian voices can get amplified um, with things that aren't true. And, and so we were in a constant battle to explain to people that the, the things you're hearing about, about COVID or the vaccine are not, are not true. So uh, I, I would say um, making sure public health is in the position it needs to be, uh, improving uh, communication, uh, improving diagnostics and monitoring are all important pieces of, of what we need to be doing when the next pandemic comes. On behalf of Novant Health team members and our listeners here, thank you so much for your leadership in helping Novant Health and our communities navigate this pandemic. Thank you. Gina DiPietro again. Some great information there from Dr. Priest and a well-deserved thank you for his leadership throughout this pandemic. We hope you'll join us for future episodes where other healthcare leaders and influencers provide insight on everything from digital healthcare and consumerism to care transformation. Keep your finger on the pulse of healthcare with Industry Insights, a healthcare podcast presented by Novant Health. Thank you for listening.